Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, week 22 of this Revelation series. Last week, we finished up Revelation 20, and we saw the fate of the dragon and the fate of the beast and the fate of that false prophet. We also saw the fate of the followers of that unholy trinity, and we finally see them gone forever. And we now turn our attention to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This is a very... Um, dramatic passage within the apocalypse. The dramatic passage where we see this awe-inspiring structure coming down out of heaven. And the question we, we ask is, well, what does this mean? I mean, is this a new city? I mean, it says it's a city, but the text also says it's a bride. This answer is given to us plainly within this text that we're going to examine today and, and we're going to unpack in great detail. To let the cat out of the bag, I, I believe this is the picture of the bride of Christ. Yes, this city coming down out of heaven is the bride of Christ and she's being presented to the groom. The groom is Jesus. But before we examine the radiant beauty of the bride of Christ here in this text, I want to ask you a question that I had to ask myself. Do you love the bride of Christ? I mean, this is a very important question that we all need to answer, but must be careful not to answer it too quickly. Why? Well, because of, of course, the, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, yes, of course I love the bride of Christ. Of course I love the church. But the fact of the matter is, if you listen to most people, even most Christians, we do not speak about the bride of Christ like she is actually Jesus's bride. We don't speak about her like we truly love her. We, we don't speak about her like we actually belong to her, like we're a part of her. If anything, we're, we're so critical of the church and it's absolutely insane. And I see it firsthand on social media. I mean, man, I'm attacked more by Christians than I am non-Christians. It seems to me that the church is just so critical of, of their brothers and sisters. And what it leads to is a, really a lack of growth, a lack of, of, of spiritual maturity. And it, and it essentially slows down the expansion of the kingdom. And I've come to understand that the bride is not perfect. At this point in time, she, she is far from perfect. And we see this in Revelation 2 through 3, that these churches, these seven churches being a representation of the complete church of all time is filled with contradiction and, and difficulty, struggling with hypocrisy and, and idolatry and compromise. We all have some, if not all of the characteristics of the seven churches in us, having to be corrected, having to be warned, you know, having to be rebuked. We see all of these things there early on. And these are true of all churches. All these things are true of all Christians. And that's not to be denied. We know this. But still, we say things like the world's a mess because the church isn't doing what she's supposed to do. Our political structure is all turned upside down. It's a train wreck because Christians didn't do what they were supposed to do. Homosexuals hate the church because Christians didn't love them the right way. 
There's no more prayer in school because Christians, you fill in the blanks. We blast the church for what we see coming out of Hollywood. Because after all, if the church would just be the church, Hollywood wouldn't be Hollywood. We blast the church for what we see happening around the globe. Because after all, if the church would be the church, all of these terrible things wouldn't be happening. I mean, we look at the church as some political entity. I mean, don't we view the church this way? As if she's some entity that needs to have a leader like the Pope who organizes us all so, so we can uh, just get the church mobilized. And if we could do that, get the church moving in the same direction, everything would change in the world. Everything would be great. We could exercise our power and we could just usher in the kingdom. And others see the church as a service organization like, like the Red Cross. They think that our goal ought to be uh, to meet the physical needs of the community so that people's lives are more comfortable on their way to hell. Again, Christians are imperfect. There's no doubt. We're all guilty of not being who we're supposed to be. But the question I have is, since, since when is the world being so broken, the church's fault? I mean, does the Bible say this? No, it doesn't. And as I've found this war that's raging in Revelation, in my last seven months of studying this book, there is not a single indication that it's the church's fault. Friends, let us keep in mind that there is a dragon, there is a beast, there is a false prophet or antichrist spirit that is waging war against the church. (laughs) Yes, Satan is manipulating political structures and kingdoms. This antichrist spirit is running rampant all over earth. This world is Satan's domain and he hates God and the church. So what do you think he's going to do to you? Lay down and just let us advance God's agenda? And don't you forget about the horror of Babylon, this this anti-God city and system that leads the masses astray. Again, another tool Satan uses to manipulate God's creation. All of these things are real. And they actually work and they war against the church. They hate the church. They hate God. And according to Revelation, this is why we see what we see. Not because of a, of a lack of what the church is doing. However, as we come to the close of the letter, we see another picture of the church. Another picture of the bride of Christ. And I want to show you this because there are many of us who don't feel great about ourselves in our walks with Christ. Some of us need to be reminded that no matter how much we mess up, how dysfunctional we are, there are many truths here about us. Much about our identity is here for us. And it is promising and it's encouraging. And when we look at sections of Revelation, we see multiple angles. But as we look at Revelation in its totality as a whole, we see a complete picture. We see the faithfulness and the radiant beauty of the bride of Christ. And the challenging question for us after today will be, will we talk about the church in terms of what we see in Revelation 2 through 3? You know, which is the hypocrisy and the idolatry and the compromise and just the brokenness. Or will we talk about the church in terms of what we see in Revelation 21? Because I believe right now the answer for most of us is the former, not the latter. Friends, there is no doubt that the church at this moment is imperfect. This book before us has presented what in, all of that in Revelation 2 through 3. Revelation 2 through 3 shows us exactly how jacked up the church is. And when we just focus on this, it leads to a problem. 
And the problem is not that we see things that are wrong and say something about it. It's completely fine to talk about things that we could do better and then be one that leads the charge by example and, and showing you know, growth in your walk. The, the problem is we see the wrong things that are wrong because of our wrong view of the church. And that problem leads to the next problem. That's all we ever see. So what happens is we never speak about the radiant beauty of the bride of Christ. We never speak about how glorious she is. We never speak about her as if we really believe she's the bride of Christ. We only talk about what she's not. In fact, we talk about Jesus's bride in ways that we would never talk about another man's bride. I mean, guys, people would never walk up to me and trash my wife the way that people trash Jesus's bride. Friends, we ought to be more afraid of Jesus than we are of any human being. We must understand that it's not okay to bash the church the way we do. We're all guilty. But what do we see going on here in this text? I mean, we have this holy city called the New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. We see the glory of God. We see no more tears and no more death, no more sorrow, crying, pain. We see the description of this city, the bride, and it's amazing. It is finally some good news in a book that is packed full of intense text that doesn't always make us feel good. But what is this city? Who is this bride? Well, before we unpack this text and answer this question, I need to ask you one more question. Is this text from Revelation 21, is it literal or is it symbolic? And if you've been here for the entire season of this podcast, I think you already know the answer to this. Yes, I'm going with symbolic. And again, for the 15th time, we don't have to agree on this, but I just want to point it out. And I'm not going to, um, you know, get upset if you don't agree with me, but I am going to defend my position and give you an understanding of why I see it this way. And again, we can agree to disagree. We can have differing views and opinions on this, but I do urge you to hang out and hear me out because regardless if you agree or not, you will be encouraged through this episode. That is for sure. And with that being said, I say it's tough to take this text literally. Why? Well, because of the nature of Revelation. First, the nature of the book is that of symbolism. And we have looked at most of this book through a symbolic lens. Second, the sheer size and the scale of the city described and its adornments, it's just off the charts, like outside of our brain to be able to process like how big this city is and how beautifully dressed it is. It doesn't even sound real. Third, the number 12 is back. And multiples of the number 12 that we see over and over again and that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. And the way that I've interpreted the number 12 throughout Revelation has to be interpreted the same way here. Fourth, because of the tribes. These 12 tribes are mentioned again. And if we go back to previous episodes, we speak of the 12 tribes in detail and what this means. Again, simply Old Testament people of God. Fifth, because of the apostles. These 12 apostles are mentioned again. If we go back to previous episodes, we speak of the 12 apostles in detail and what this means. Again, simply the New Testament people of God. All of these things lead me to interpret this the same way that we've interpreted everything else 
And the way we apply this symbolism gives us clear answers on the meaning of this text. So let's just jump into Revelation 21, verses 9 through 20. Let's unpack this text and let's see what it says about this city called the New Jerusalem that comes down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Starting in verse 9 down through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. So this text in itself dictates that we see the city symbolically because we know who the bride of Christ is. We've seen this throughout scripture. I mean, we know, for example, that Ephesians 5 makes it clear that the relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the husband and bride relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, not a city. It's his church. The angel says here, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And the next thing we see, the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down out of heaven. So this to me makes it clear that this text is not literal. This is not um, a picture of a literal dwelling place of the people of God, of the people of God. And as we've already heard weeks back, once you start translating these numbers that you see here, that we're about to see, you, you lose it completely. It's gone. But not only the obvious things, there is another reason here why I don't look at this literally. And that's because of the obvious connection between the bride here in Revelation 21 and the great prostitute in Revelation 17. But both symbolic women and both complete opposites in nature. And we went over this a few episodes back, but let me run back through this briefly and remind you of what we compared and contrasted in case you missed it. We've got to see the parallel here because it's very significant. But I want to point out that Revelation uh, 17 and Revelation 21 both show us a woman who, who are also described as cities and their descriptions are very distinct um, and very much different, like night and day. Revelation 17, listen to this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, come and I will show you judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So here we have one of the seven angels taking John to see a vision of the, of the harlot, the prostitute, the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17. And here the angel takes John to see a vision of the bride of Christ in Revelation 21. So you got prostitute, whore, harlot, then you got bride. Night and day, two complete opposites. Back to Revelation 17. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and 10 horns. So here we see John taken out to the wilderness in Revelation 17. And John is taken to a high mountain in Revelation 21. It's clear these are two complete opposites. The wilderness, I mean, remember guys, was, was the place where Jesus was led to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. The high mountain, well, if you know anything about Old Testament prophetic literature of Israel, you understand the significance of being taken away to a high mountain. I mean, just think of Moses. Where, where did he go to, to be with God? Where did he get the, the commandments? Like he went to the top, he went to the high mountain. <laughs> so you have wilderness and great high mountain. Again, two complete opposites. Back to Revelation 17. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, jewel, gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So just look at how this harlot is described in Revelation 17. Arrayed in all the worldly beauty, attractive, 
hard to resist, yet holding a cup of abominations and impurities of her immorality, just as a prostitute would. And then you have a bride here in Revelation 21, the holy city, coming down her radiance and beauty like a most rare jewel. Again, two complete opposites. Back to Revelation 17 for the last contrast. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So look at how the prostitute was marked in Revelation 17. Marked on her forehead. Mother of all prostitutes, abominations, drunk with the blood of the saints coming from earth. I mean, she sounds horrible. And then you have the bride here in Revelation 21, marked by God, having his glory coming down from heaven. Again, you couldn't have two more complete opposites. Guys, look at the parallel. And maybe I'm reaching, maybe I'm reading too deep into this, but look at how these two are contrasted. And you tell me this isn't on purpose. I mean, you have a woman seated on many waters representing the great city of man who is anti-God, who is seductive and lures the masses to follow her. This city, it essentially represents everything ungodly and the masses follow it. And we look here and we see the city of God, the people of God following him, representing him and it's everything glorious and everything godly. Again, two completely different people, groups, and two completely different ideologies. And here's the truth for me. When you follow this great prostitute, this harlot, this whore, this seductive world system, it leads to what? To the worship of the beast. It leads to death and destruction. When you follow the Lord wholeheartedly, it leads to worship of the one true God. It leads to eternal life. So you're either a part of the world or you're part of the holy city, the bride of Christ. So with that out of the way, there are five things that I found within this text that, ref that are reflected by this bride, this wife of the lamb. And, and I find it necessary to point it out. And this is really what I want you all to hear. Maybe you want to grab a pen and, and, and piece of paper and you want to write these five things down because... They are for you. And as a member of the bride of Christ, we must grasp these as our identity. First, the bride reflects God's love for his people. I mean, this is a picture of the people of God. And this bride terminology reflects the idea of God's love for his people. First, that, that, that love for his people is reflected um, in the distinction between the prostitute who is in the wilderness and who is used by the beast and then destroyed by the beast. And you contrast that with the idea of the new Jerusalem, who is a bride, who, who is a wife. I mean, she's coming to be married and cherished, not used, abused and destroyed. I mean, think about Ephesians. Guys, what does Ephesians speak about? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her by the washing of the water of the word that he might present the church to himself, that he might do so without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. I mean, here's the idea of the bride being presented to the son because of the love that he has, he has for her. I mean, John 15 tells us, greater love has no one more than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Christ laid down his life for his bride. In Ephesians 2, we see this picture of us dead in our trespasses under the influence of the power of the prince of the power of the air, 
by, by nature, children of wrath. <laughs> but God changes that. Why? Well, because of the great love in which he loved us. And Paul tells us in Romans that God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, this picture of, of the love relationship between the bride and the lamb is a reflection of the radiant beauty of the bride of Christ. The bride is beautiful because she's loved uniquely by the groom. And it is the love of the groom that makes the bride beautiful. I mean, Revelation 1, 4 through 6 tells us clearly that Jesus loves his bride and, and freed her from sins, from her sins by shedding his blood for her. I mean, he made her a kingdom of priests for God the Father. It, it is clear first and foremost, the bride reflects the love God has for his people. Secondly, the bride also reflects God's glory. I mean, look at the text. John was carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain, being shown the holy city descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God like a most rare stone. So what is the bride's glory? Well, her glory is not her own. Her glory is actually the glory of God. And we must see that the bride is, is beautiful not on her own, but because of the glory of God. God. God doesn't get glory from anyone or anything. Guys, he alone is glorious. And we, his bride, reflect that glory, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what God has done. So when we look at the bride and we speak about the bride, we speak about the church, we speak about our brothers and sisters, ultimately we're speaking about God. What we say about the bride, what we say about the church, what we say about our brothers and sisters in Christ says a lot about what we think concerning the glory of God himself. Because the bride is glorious and that's because God is glorious. And we know this glory is reflected in the beauty of holiness. There's that word again. The word I always speak of that is important in our walks with the Lord. It's maturing in our faith and it's a daily walk. It's a daily grind. You look at what Revelation uh, 19, seven through eight says, says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The marriage has come. The bride has made herself ready. How? She clothed herself in fine, bright, white, pure linen. And that linen, it's the robes, the robes of righteousness. That is a reflection of holiness and purity. Guys, we are to be pursuing holiness as we wait for the Lord. We are to be preparing for the groom's return. And our prep involves exactly this, sanctification. I mean, guys, what do you think Jesus meant in Matthew 25 in the parable of the 10 bridesmaids? He had 10 bridesmaids, which represents the church. He left. He said, keep your lamps full. I'm going to prepare a place. He come, when he returns, guess what? Well, half, half had their lamps full and half didn't. Half were preparing, half weren't. Half were pursuing holiness and, and an upright life. And the other half were goofing off. And you know the rest of the story. So guys, this, this, this idea of sanctification, this is a reflection of the glory of God. Verse 12 through 14. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates of the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. Third, the bride also reflects God's redeeming grace. So this is a picture and this text is telling us that the bride reflects God's grace. 
What we read here is also a parallel to Ezekiel 40. Get a chance, go read Ezekiel 40. It speaks of this new temple. And the text is very similar to what we read here. So is there significance to that? Absolutely, yes. But before I share what I believe the significance is, I just want to point out that there are those who argue that the temple in Ezekiel 40 is this great, it's prophetic for this great end time temple that must be built in Jerusalem before Jesus returns. And so right now, there are people like sending finances to Israel in order to fund the building of this temple. And and this may not be popular, but this is my opinion. This is problematic for reasons that we don't have time to discuss. But simply put, I, I don't believe that Ezekiel 40 is speaking of a literal temple that is to be built any more than this text from Revelation 21 that we just read is speaking of a literal temple. I mean, what I believe Ezekiel is seeing is the building of the same thing that John is communicating to us here in this passage. And I believe that this is a building of the temple of the body of Christ. Yes, I am one that believes this, believes this temple is, 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 the, is the church, is the temple of believers. If you read ahead to verse 22 of this chapter, you see there is no temple in this city. And there's a reason that there's no temple inside this city because this city is ultimately a temple because it's made up of the people of God and God dwells with his people. What do we need a temple for? And while we're on the topic of the temple, let me just sidebar, sidetrack real quick. I think it's important to highlight something. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the true temple. Remember in John 2 and Jesus was talking to the religious leaders and, and he, he, they were giving him trouble and, and he talked about something. He answered, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they turned around and said to him, bro, it, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But what does the scripture, scripture say? It says that he was speaking about the temple being his body. Guys, Jesus is the true temple. And then I recall Jesus telling the woman at the well, there would come a day when, when you wouldn't go to a temple to worship. And he told her in John 4, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, what does that mean? Well, the day was coming and it came where we could worship God anywhere and this is God's desire, okay? So this isn't a, a verse that you, you, know, you use to say, well, Jesus said you didn't have to go to church. You didn't have to go to a building. Like, No, we're called to fellowship and we're called to meet and commune as believers, okay? So yes, we should be in church. We should go to the building. We should co- corporately worship together. But we don't go to church on the Lord's day just to meet with God because that's the only place we can meet him. We can meet him anywhere. He's here right now as I'm doing this podcast. Guys, where his people are, he is there. We also see in the New Testament that believers are a new temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that you, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So who is you, and who is them, and who is they? And That's us, guys. That's the church. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You are the temple. You are part of the temple. You are the, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. God has made his dwelling among us and, we, and walks among us and we, he is our God and we are his people. So this focus on another temple being built before the Lord can return to me just doesn't seem right. And it, to me, it's not even worthy of acknowledging. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. Does it change my, the, you know, my place with the Lord and my salvation? No. I mean, does it change anything in the way that I obey the Lord's calling on my life? No. Does it mean I go start arguments on TikTok and social media with people because they're, you know, they're not, they don't believe like I believe? No. All of this is so secondary to everything primary, which is the gospel. And when we get sidetracked by things like this, it's dangerous. Okay. And the reason I'm sharing this is because I'm just trying to back up my point because this is my podcast and I'm sharing my interpretation and I want you to understand why I, I interpret it this way, right? So with that being said, okay, I'm seeing this text from the New Testament. And my question is, why would we need a temple in the New Jerusalem if Christ, who is the true temple, is there and, and, and you know, is united with us, his bride? Why, why would we need a temple if we are there with him? If our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, why would we need a temple? And if we are in heavenly Jerusalem, why, why would we need a temple? Why, why would we need to go anywhere to worship the Lord when the Lord is with us? The fact of the matter is we don't. And we won't in that instance. So back to the third reflection. Oh yeah, I'm sorry I got so sidetracked. God's redemption and God's redeeming grace here is a picture that is carrying through this theme of the marriage. There's this idea of the covenant of redemption between the father and the son. So the father elects a bride for his son. The son goes to redeem the bride with his own blood. The son returns to the father to wait and intercede for his bride, to prepare a place for his bride. And the spirit during this time applies redemption to all of the elect. And in the fullness of time, the son returns and defeats the enemies of both his father and his bride and the bride descending as the son's reward. And this is a picture of redemption, guys. And the radiant beauty of, of the bride is seen in this redemption. You also see this redemption in this picture of Israel in the church. I mean, notice you have both the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And we've seen this a number of times before in Revelation. And, and we understand that this represents the fullness of the people of God from both, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I want to point out a different view. And I want to point this out. And I believe that this is somewhat dangerous. And it's, it's this view of the dispensationalists, that the two are distinct. Jews and Gentiles are still distinct in the eyes of God. That's, that's, the, that's the, the view. That we're not one church. That we're, we're not one body. And guys, I just can't agree with that. To me, it's really astonishing that anyone would go down this road of thinking heaven is going to have a Jew-Gentile divide. That there is such a commitment to the distinction between Israel and the church 
that it's going to carry over into eternity. And we're going to go through eternity with a group of people being identified separately than everyone else because they're genetically connected to Abraham. I mean, God help us if this is what we take away from all of this. I mean, I just can't see this anywhere in scripture. The the covenantal view is not so. In fact, it is the exact opposite. We have the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles because it represents the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. And together, they represent the the people of God of all time. It represents this unity in the history of redemption. Guys, we got to remember that not all Israelites were part of true Israel. We know this. Paul tells us this in Romans 9. And not all true Israel was made up of Israelites. And we, we see a foreshadowing this in the Old Testament. I mean, you think, think of Zipporah and Rahab. Um, who else? Tamar. How about Bathsheba? Gentiles, man. That there is not a pure genetic line of Israelites. I mean, there are Gentiles included even before we get to the New Testament. So knowing all of this, it's quite ridiculous to think that there's going to be a division in heaven. Guys, Christ broke down this dividing wall. And that's why we read in Galatians 3, 28 through 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So based on this text, based on what I'm telling you, where is there room for division between Jew and Gentile in heaven? There is none. Guys, and if you get a chance, go read Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Open your Bibles. When you have a chance, read that and tell me how we can read that and then think there's going to be division in heaven. One complete people, period. There's no other way to see this. Guys, Jesus broke down the Jew-Gentile distinction at the cross and it no longer exists. This is covenant theology and I can't help but see it this way. Simply put, those saved by the blood of Jesus are, are... are the people of God. I mean, I believe there is no distinction now between the Jews and Gentiles and there will not be a distinction in the eternal state. Absolutely not. Verse 15 through 17. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Fourth, the bride also reflects God's faithfulness and protection of his people. Notice a few things here in this text. First of all, there's a wall. It could have just said there is a city and it has borders. Its borders are so-and-so. But it doesn't just have borders. It has a wall. And the very presence of the wall speaks about the protection of the people of God. That the people uh, people of God are protected by this wall. And then look at the length of the wall. I mean, guys, this is a long wall. And regardless of how long it is, based on the numbers, it's telling us it is a high wall and it's a long wall. And that point is is being made very clear. Guys, 12,000 stadia is literally 1,380 miles. And that is long. But the question we ask is, is this, is this a literal number? Again, we must remember that 12,000 is very significant in the grand scheme of Revelation. I mean, we have 12 times 1,000, which equals 12,000. 
And we've already seen that when we talk about a thousand, we're talking about what? A really huge number. A number that John wouldn't have been able to comprehend in his day. And on the other hand, the number 12 is extremely precise. And there's significance to this. Inside side note, the height of this wall would reach up to space. I mean, it would reach up into orbit. <laughs> so guys, this is a, a big wall. And based on this, I can only assume that John's point here is not that this is a literal wall. Again, symbolic. And if, if I'm wrong, I mean, someone call me, please, and explain these numbers. Because this, there's, no, there's just no way. But notice the text also states this city is, is a perfect cube. I mean, this causes me to think of the perfect cube mentioned in the Old Testament. I'm going to point that out. First Kings 6.20. It says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. Guys, this is a picture of the Holy of Holies. This is the place that only the high priest could approach. This place where atonement was made. The place that was a prefiguring of Christ and his finished work on the cross. But is this city going to be a perfect square cube city? No. This, this place, this city mentioned here in this text is a prefiguring of the perfection of the people of God because of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. And for, for the perfection of the worship that this people offer him throughout eternity. Back to this wall. Notice there are angels on the walls. So we have walls that are high, thick, and long, and they're guarded by angels. And we've got 12 angels. Let's remember that it only took two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we have 12. Guys, we're safe. We're secure. But, but what is the meaning? Well, this is the eternal security of the people of God. I mean, have you ever wondered what is there to stop this thing from starting all over again? I mean, you ever wondered about that? I mean, I'm sure we all think this. We just don't ask it. I mean, if Adam and Eve were in paradise and fell, what, why won't we? Well, this wall symbolizes a theological reality that God erects a permanent distinction and separation between those who are his and those who are not those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. I mean, the heaven is made new. The earth is made new. And through the resurrection, our bodies, we're, we're made new and we're made new. We are like made like Christ in a way that Adam never was. We're, we're made like re the resurrected Christ who is perfect and sinless in every way. The, the wall symbolizes the theological reality that we are secure in our salvation and we can bank on this now. This security is now and it carries over. We have eternal life now and that is a present possession. That is a promise. But on the other side of the coin, this is also a picture of the eternal damnation of God's enemies. The idea here of the wall, this long, this high, this thick wall that's guarded by angels is like a picture of Eden being guarded by angels when man was evicted from it. And now we are in the true Eden and these angels are guarding it so that those on the outside never have an opportunity to come in. Because there is no purgatory. You're either in or you're out. Verse 18 through 20, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall 
of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of this city was pure gold like transparent glass. Fifth, the final, the bride also reflects God's beauty. And let me point out that gold is not like clear glass. The point that John is making here is that the realities of that, uh, the realities that he sees are far beyond anything we could imagine or could have, could have experienced or could even comprehend. I mean, all that we read in this text reflects God's beauty and perfections. First in its dimensions. I mean, its dimensions are not just large, but, but its dimensions are perfect. Why? Because it's using perfect numbers. The perfect number 12, which represents the perfect number of the people of God. What's the bride? The bride is the people of God. It's the church. So this is the perfect church that Christ has built. And it's perfect in every way. The thickness of the walls is 12 by 12, which equals 144. And it's not just 12, it's 12,000. I mean, he could have just said 12 stadia and made the point. He doesn't just say 12 stadia. He says 12,000. Why? Because of the beauty and the perfection of God as reflected in the radiant beauty of the bride of Christ. It is 12 times that unfathomable number of of 1,000. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. It's something that we aren't able to comprehend. And how about the materials used? Well, there are three possible sources for the Old Testament origin of this use. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to point out one. And I, I was brought to Isaiah's prophecy, comforting, suffering Israel in Isaiah 54, 11 through 12. Listen to this. It says, O afflicted one, storm tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. So the idea here is though you are oppressed, I'm going to build you a city that is unable to be penetrated. And that's the idea. I mean, we've seen God's people oppressed throughout Revelation and now all of a sudden we see this structure that's unable to be penetrated and barely even fathomable and completely and utterly beautiful in every way. I mean, the best of everything is what is used to make it. So this is a picture of the radiant beauty of the bride of Christ for all these reasons. But now that we know these things, the question we ask is, well, what is, the, what is, what is our takeaway? And I see, a, I see a few things. First, as a member of the body of Christ, think about yourself in these terms. Understand that this is what it means for you to belong to Christ. This is what's true of you. This is what he's making of you. This is what he's forming in you. This is what you are a part of as a member of the body of Christ. Second, remember this when you talk about the church. Remember this when you are in casual conversation and people are throwing around those phrases that we often throw around, if the church was only this and if the church would only do that, as though what Jesus has to come and deal with at the end of age is not the beast and the dragon and the false prophet. It's not actually the whore of Babylon, but it's the church. It's the church that he's got to come and deal with. The church is the problem. The the, the church is the one that he needs to come and deal with. I mean, guys, that's the way we talk about the church and it's not true and it's not right. And it's not appropriate to talk about the church in this way. Do churches have problems? Yes. Do Christians have sins? Yes. All of that is true. This is what we see in Revelation 2 through 3. The church is jacked. But the fact of the matter is Revelation 21 is as true of us. 
And it shouldn't be the case that every time we talk about the bride of Christ, we talk about what she's not. That should not be the case. And I stand before you the most convicted and guilty of being so critical at times. And I've had to repent and allow the Lord to deal with me in this matter. I've crossed the line so often being critical of the church. And I see through a different lens now that I've studied this chapter in Revelation. And I've studied the whole book of Revelation. Third, when you see deficiencies in the church, ascribe them to you, not us. What do I mean by that? Well, the most blunt way to put this is go, go look in the mirror. It's real easy to talk about what the church is not doing. It's much more difficult to talk about what I'm not doing. Because remember, I'm a member of the bride of Christ. And it's amazing to me how often we point the finger and say the church is not this and the church is not that. And we fail to realize that we're part of the church. So how are we doing with those things? You know, all of a sudden it gets real quiet. All you hear is crickets. Worry about how you can further be conformed to the image of Christ. Guys, if we would each take accountability for our personal walks, the church would be a powerful force. Lastly, we must un-Americanize our view of the church. This city that comes down, the New Jerusalem, it's not America, guys. America is not the end-all, be-all in God's redemptive plan and that he set everything up in the world so that, we would, uh, that he would ultimately get to America and then finally have America squared away and then just go ahead and bring down the city here. No, America is not the New Jerusalem. America is not the totality of, of the people of God. We simply are not and we must stop thinking in this way. Because ultimately, most of the negative things that we say about the church has to do with this kind of thinking. And to be quite honest, America looks a lot, a lot more like the whore of Babylon than any nation on earth. So where do we get off comparing ourselves to this glorious standard anyway? There is absolutely a striking resemblance between us and that wealthy woman seated on many waters who seduces the kings of the earth with her wealth. We look a lot more like her than we do the New Jerusalem. But here's the newsflash. The New Jerusalem it is not about a geopolitical entity. It is made up of a people who find themselves in all geopolitical entities and are yet a part of the bride of Christ. It is not a country or a city that makes up this multitude. Remember, all people and all tribes and all tongues and all nations will God bring together to form this bride who will come down from heaven adorned for her husband. Church, we are the bride of Christ. Are we perfect today? No, we all have major flaws, but he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It will be completed. That is a promise. And when we're in the eternal state, that work will be completed and Christ will be the one who completes this work. When Jesus was on the cross and he said it is finished, he introduces us to this already not yet tension. So there is a sense of which I'm already saved and we are. But there is also this tension because I am not yet all the way saved, meaning I am not yet glorified. It has not worked its way out completely. One day I will be glorified. But until then, you and I will still fall short. Hence why you see the struggle in all of us. But is this the reason to bash the church? No. It's more reason to pursue Christ in a holy life, working out our salvation, allowing our motivation to be to love the world around us. And this includes the lost and the church. Our goal should be to edify and encourage and at times rebuke and discipline and do all of this in love. We need to be careful about being so critical. Every single one of us needs to understand that we are a work in progress and will be until we see Jesus at the end of age. But here's the truth. In the past tense, 
We were saved from the penalty of sin. In the present tense, we are being saved from the power of sin. In the future tense, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. It's coming, and I am reminded of it regularly. I am reminded of it when I sin. And in that reminder, I go to God. But even my communion with God is imperfect. I go to God to pray, and sometimes my thoughts wander. Sometimes I go to God to pray, and I have sinful thoughts. Here I am praying to the Almighty God, and a thought that is sinful comes into my head. But there is coming a day when I won't experience that anymore. When your communion will, with God will, uh, will be perfect because you will be perfect. Completely righteous. All because of Jesus. All because of the finished work of Jesus. Not because you're perfect yourself, but because Jesus finishes his work. This is what we look forward to, church. This is why we rid our lives of the critical spirit. We should be pursuing Jesus, which leads to longing for him and longing to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the questions I ask. Do, do, we, do we really yearn for this? Do we yearn for Jesus? Do we yearn for fellowship with our brothers and sisters? I mean, do we love the church? If we don't, we ought to. We should yearn for the beauty and the glory of this city. I mean, what could be more glorious than being in perfect communion with God? And we have a foretaste of that at times here. Gathering, fellowship, worship. I mean, we see glimpses of heaven here on earth and this gives us a hope of a future. And there is something very healthy about this anticipation for us. It gives us a desire to pursue the things of God, to pursue holiness, to pursue Jesus recklessly. And we must but here's the sad truth. There are many people, including Christians, who want heaven, but not Jesus. Many individuals who want heaven, but not the church. And this makes no sense whatsoever. Friends, let me ask you a question. What is this city all about? This city is all about perfect communion with Christ. It's about perfect fellowship with believers that you have a hard time being around now. So if you don't want communion with Christ now and you don't want fellowship with those believers now, what makes you think you're going to want that later? Because whatever you say you want is not the heaven of the Bible. It's something else. And see, the truth is the heaven in the Bible drives you towards other believers, not away from them. It drives you towards the Christ of the scriptures, not away from him. So the individual who says I'm spiritual, but not religious, I love Jesus, but not Christians, I don't have time for Christ, but I want to go to heaven is a hypocrite and a self-deceived liar. If you don't desire Christ now, you don't desire fellowship with believers now, you don't desire pursuing holiness now, you are not a Christian and you are not headed towards heaven. And if you got there, you'd hate it because it's everything that you want no part of now. So how can you convince anyone that he is what you want when what he's building for you is not what you want? How can you convince anyone that you belong to him, yet the things he created you to yearn for, you don't yearn for? How can you convince anyone that you love God who you can't see, but you can't stand your brothers and sisters who you can see every day? How can you convince anyone of this? And these aren't my questions. These are John's questions, guys. And this is the challenge for us. And we must stand up and answer these questions honestly and deal with this hard truth. The New Jerusalem is about communion with Jesus and fellowship with our brothers and sisters and holiness. And if you don't desire that now, you're not on the right track. So which reality will we live? 
this reality that Revelation has showed us in which we are winners and we serve an already victorious God or what the world offers us where there is no hope and we're losing the battle. I mean, guys, I can sit here all day and preach, but you have to hear from the spirit and you have to be obedient. The church of Jesus Christ isn't built up through just proclamation on Sunday. It's the people of God actually owning their faith. Look, there's no varsity threshold for Christian living. There are just those who are willing to be obedient. I mean, just look at the people God picks in the Bible. Because these aren't the most polished and first picks in the draft. They're usually the leftovers. They really are. They all have significant issues. But this is the way God works, man. Look, friends, I was that. And Jesus swept me up off the street. Former drug dealer, cheater, idol worshiper, notorious sinner. But God took me, the last pick, the street rat, and has turned me over to a new life. A life that glorifies him because I'm willing to lay it down. So church, what have you not laid down? What is causing you not to fully surrender? Maybe it is you keep believing what the enemy says about you. Well, if that's you, remember, he's the accuser. All he does is accuse and he does a good job of keeping you down. But if we're going to stand up and fight and go to war, we must believe what God says about us, not what the enemy says. We, we must believe what is true. And the more you don't believe what is true, the more you cut off your destiny that God has for you. Friends, this is not a spectator sport. We need to fight. And I've been telling you this for this entire season of, of this of, of this revelation series. We are in a war. And if you aren't getting this by episode 22, you need to hear me now. Wake up and get in this fight with me. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Celine. Come back next week for episode 23. We move into the final chapter of this book, Revelation 22. And the final episode of this season. Yes, we are almost there, my friends. I hope you come back. Until next time, take care. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Celine. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have. <laughs>